Hello, Ian Ayers. It's George. Uh, from time to time, I'm accused of not adhering to uh, social or conversational norms, and the upcoming podcast is is an example of such. Uh, Carly, Dan, and I had the had the good fortune to talk with uh, Matt Dryhurst, who's a friend of mine for a long time and and one of the real true believers and artists in the kind of blockchain space. Um, but as is my want, uh, I just jumped right in with no introduction whatsoever. So yeah, here's a little little intro on Matt. He's um, awesome. He's uh, smart, generous with his time and knowledge, a uh, musician, uh, an educator, a writer, a thinker, um, and just somebody that, that, that tends to be ahead of the curve and be guided by the values that, uh, that, that to me seem so imperative for us to, to create a new, uh, a new world in which we, uh, <laughs> we kind of want to live in um, a little more than this one. So I uh, hope you enjoy the conversation that, that Carly, Dan, and I had with Matt, and uh, look forward to catching up with you all soon. You grew up there, right? Scotland or something, right? No, I grew up in Kuwait. Oh my gosh, right. You have such an interesting background. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard, you could not have been I've more heard wrong, a little George. bit of this. No, I know, but there is a, <laughs> Scot, there is a Scottish connection somewhere in there, isn't there, Matt? I have a British passport because um, my parents are, are English, but yeah, I grew up in Kuwait and I lived in Cali- I've lived in California like five times as long as I lived in England. I've lived in Germany three times as long as I've lived in England. You're in Germany. I live now. in, You're in I, Berlin. Yeah, I live in right? Berlin now. Right. Okay. That's what I thought. Uh, yeah, but I've, I'm a mongrel. <clears throat> yeah. Well, we all are, I suppose. Um, how How are you all? Great. Good. I'm a little. I'm a little burned out too. I wouldn't have even, I mean, unless Carly and Dan, because they won't shut up about it, I wouldn't have even known it's Easter. I mean, in this. <laughs> well, sadly, you can't avoid it in Germany. They take that stuff really seriously here. That's all I had said is that it's really <laughs> nice that there's a Friday and Monday holiday in Germany. And then yep. George went on for 10 minutes about the division of religion and government in the US. And <laughs> it's really, it is really strange. Yeah. Like, cause I don't know. I, I don't know if you know much about the German constitution. It's kind of interesting. Like you have my in, attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting. Cause it's like, uh, they, in many ways, it was kind of like a, an updated version of the American constitution, except the one thing that they didn't do well was the separation of church and state like here uh, unlike funny, america re- <laughs> <laughs> but but here it's like intense i mean you pay like you pay the church monthly unless you opt out of it mm-hmm. you by default fund the churches here um oh my god but it's 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 a peculiar it's a peculiar thing because people wouldn't you know people would associate germany with kind of like a secular uh european deal but but constitutionally speaking, it's actually very like more present than most places I've lived. We're all just fucked. I mean, like where where <laughs> where can you get away from this? Like where can you go? Australia. Is that right? Yeah, you just like do whatever you want, live in the bush, drink your fosters. Well, I certainly don't themselves. want to do either of those things. <laughs> I don't want to drink fosters or live in a bush. <laughs> okay, there are some city options too, but it is it is something we talk about quite a lot is like there is this kind of asymmetry between this kind of historical burden that is everywhere and the lack of dynamism. I think COVID has been kind of expository on this point, but like 
if you look at, for example, the way that Europe has dealt with it, there is this kind of general feeling of doom. At least I have a general feeling of doom where I'm like, how do I go somewhere that works? You know, like, right. Like I pay, I pay a ton in tax. Like there's a lot I can kind of get behind, but generally everywhere it feels very stagnant. Mm -hmm. It's so well said. It it feels retrograde and stagnant. And and that's what I was kind of getting like, where does one go where it works? And, and I think it's New Zealand. I I changed my answer. New Zealand. And New Zealand's great. Yeah, so that's where all the tech bros are going to go, though, right? Don't they all have like their <laughs> bunkers there? Isn't that like? In don't New they Zealand? all have? Yeah, I think I that's know, where I've they all have bought. Yeah, like when shit really hits the fan, they're all going to New Zealand. Yeah, because it's like fresh water and yeah, it's environmentally, I think, pretty hard to beat. It's also one of the few places, except for Vancouver, Canada, where you can like snowboard and surf in the same day. But I mean. From a government standpoint, it's um, it's very progressive. They just passed, there's now legislation that allots um, parental leave to both women and men if there is a miscarriage, which mm. I think is incredible. Mm. Like they have really compassionate, uh, a very compassionate approach to their government structure. And also, I mean, like they killed it with COVID. She knocked totally. it out of the park. They were one of the first countries to actually get a handle on it and then one of my favorite New Zealand stories do you guys remember it was probably two years ago now there was a like a large British family that traveled to New Zealand and they just wreaked havoc everywhere they went they were littering on beaches they were getting drunk they were running out on bills and the country was like we have to get them out and they were deported like they were shamefully this family there was like a, there was a video of this like six-year-old kid giving people the finger and people were just like this family has got to go and they yeah Sounds they deported right. this it was like i can't remember where they were from but yeah it was just I'm like shocked this, they weren't from like houston they just went to get drunk and yeah, yeah it was so. like or florida <laughs> no that sounds very english but it, it does, it, you know, I think we're so oddly like I feel I feel like you do, Matt, that, that like, you know, where does it work? And at the same time, I have this like glimmer of hope around kind of and I'm, I really don't love this term, but until we come up with a better one. But Web3 in, in some degree of optimism and a lot of that's been shaped by your thinking and your work there and I, re- I so appreciate you taking the time to do not only this but also the article zooming into my berkeley classes i mean what can i do for you like you know like, and, I, and, I, and i offer like i'll come on your I'll podcast you know yeah, we'd prefer not we'd we'd actually we're doing segments that uh really you don't not great for you George. um but, but you're a generous spirit and 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 so i mean do you feel that it it is working are, are we on a path with all the NFTs and the social tokens and Web3 and, and et cetera, guilds? Like, is is there any hope? Because, I mean, this is it for me, right? Because I've, I've lived through Web1, which I thought, yeah, this could be cool. Wrong. Bezos fucked it up. I lived through Web2, which I thought, oh, this could be kind of cool. Wrong. Zuckerberg fucked it up, right? And and so if this one doesn't work, I'm out. I think I just moved to New Zealand and, and until they deport me. It's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I oscillate um in confidence i think i mean the one the one good thing in a sense on principle is that you know the the pact that you kind of enter into in summoning a 
decentralized web is on the positive side that negative things happening in the space technically shouldn't be bothering you because the whole point is that you don't have, for example, the kind of California hegemony that we had with Web 2, right? right. Like we don't right. have a few people in a room deciding what the future of your particular career is. Um, the bad side of that, of course, is that in a decentralized kind of very libertarian conception of the future of the web, you also have, in many cases, no adults in the room, right? right. So like, and there's, and that's the deal with the devil you make is you say, okay, well, there's going to be also a ton of stuff that grosses you out. Um, and so I like remain glass half full on it, if only for the fact that I get to remind myself that there will be a thousand different applications of this. And at the same time, I also do feel like burned out and kind of, what's the word? Like when you see the thing and you're like, ah, that isn't, you know, I didn't expect like the thing. Yeah. yeah, Saturday Night Live and like my football podcast that I listen to every week making yeah. jokes about GIF auctions. Yeah. That being the thing that captured people's imagination. I didn't expect that. Um but yeah, I mean but 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 at the same time it's it's kinda like there's there's no there's no uh option but to be cautiously optimistic and think about the cool stuff that's happening, right? Like because I mean the bind I find myself in is that I I'm drained of all optimism for where web two will go. So the only choice is, and, and the good news is that like, you know, there's plenty of people I know who have some, you know, status and some kind of some funds or whatever in web three who I think have the right idea about things. Um, but it's just, it's just gonna take, it's gonna take a bit longer. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, if anything, if anything, it's that kind of latency that's, that's, that's the only thing that like is hitting my confidence is that for example you know um if the public perception of web3 is you know thinking of something like an nft as inherently about auctioning images online or something along those lines rather than it being a a tool you know like a like a like a html element or like an mp3 or something like a thing you could do stuff with like a, a piece of lego you could construct whatever you want for out of the challenge i have with that is that I, don't, I haven't seen a lot talked about this but like there's a very real scenario i think where warner or hollywood says okay cool the future of the web is us selling gifts online with tokens and we don't need the decentralization part because because it, it you know that slows it down i mean and that's the reality right is like i'm not sure like for people who listen to this like what their fluency is with the topic but part of the reason why things like proof of work and ethereum being slow at the moment there's a reason for that it's by design yeah exactly it it, it, it you're supposed to progressively like there's kind of like the the trade-off right was like progressive uh uh like progressive efficiency versus like progressive decentralization which is one of the terms that are coming up and you see already like for example with like nba top shot um which is like the big actually the biggest nft service you know you can pay with a credit card it's uh, they don't call them nfts right yeah it, it's technically decentralized but it's not really it, it might as well not be in 
in the in the way that many people who got excited about web3 are and so that threat i think is like uh is 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 looming but 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 again i don't think that that when when pushed i'm still optimistic because i still think that the benefits of decentralization will come it's just the public narrative is so difficult to like get a hold of so i view it as is hype cycles right i mean you know all these all these technological innovations kind of go through s curve you know and you have that kind of immediate like thrust of excitement where people who who you get a hype bubble, right? And we saw this, we saw this, we see it constantly, saw it with the internet, um, certainly saw it with blockchain, and, and then and then it crashes. And so to my mind, we're we're not there yet with NFTs. Like we're we're not at December 2017 um with NFTs. I think we're probably a year away. Um, maybe six months, maybe it accelerates. And and at that point there will be an implosion. And I'm not sure what the crash will be. But it will, and then and then it'll shake loose a lot of these kind of pretenders, right? I mean, you you can make the pretty clear argument that this this stage now of social tokens and NFTs is a direct result of the shakeout, the bust in 2017 around December 2017, blockchain, Bitcoin, and then it shook out a lot of people. Like a lot of our friends, or not even eh, I, can't, I I can't call them friends. A lot of our, a lot of people that I actually violently disagreed with what they were trying to do with the first wave of blockchain are gone right it just did you know they were there they're kind of carpet baggers and and so we'll see the same thing it it but it's more now like you and i and others and i think probably everyone certainly carly i mean she was a, a scribe back, i mean that was essentially an nft before there was a name for it you know and and so i mean we we've seen this coming i have a harder time predicting what three to five years look like looking outward from from where we are now like it was pretty easy to kind of get to here i think um but i think you're right i think like the progressive decentralization because the thing that bummed me out so much about blockchain was i mean a, a core thesis of blockchain was interoperability the blockchains were supposed to synchronize well <laughs> somewhere along the way people said yeah not doing that right and, and you'd start building private blockchains and 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 there goes the whole ethos of it so I think the public perception part of it is really interesting. And I know the biggest part of my job while I was at Ascribe back in 2015, 16, was actually just around education, like what the blockchain even was, what decentralization meant, what the transparency meant, the immutability of it. And I thought it was really interesting because I remember speaking on panels about like, the blockchain will be able to open up these new relationships between artists and fans. It offers new ways to interact with them as well. But the interesting thing, I would like be on these panels always alongside at least one artist, primarily digital artists. They were the hardest ones to convince. It wasn't hard to get a gallery on the phone. It wasn't hard to find developers. It was really hard to convince the artists. And I think of one person in particular, uh, Maybe you also know her, Rosa Menkman. She's a Dutch vis visual artist um, and curator. And we met speaking on a panel and actually she pushed back the hardest. We ultimately became friends and spent like the whole weekend debating the topic. But she was like, why, why would I need the blockchain to kind of like interfere with my work? And one of the things that was really important to her as a digital artist was the ethereal nature of some of her work. And so mm. the immutability was like a huge con against it. And so it was a really interesting time for me to tell people like, okay, blockchain is ABC, 
but then to the artist, this is what you could do with it. And feeling that the artists, I don't know if it just, they weren't ready for it or it was maybe too specific working with digital artists because that's what Ascribe was mostly focused on. There were, of course, like some authors, some musicians, but it was very much a visual form of art. But I'm wondering what you think the current status is. Like, are artists more on board now that we're reframing it as NFTs or social tokens? Or do you think that the artist community still also needs some time to warm up to this kind of new area for them? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, my my perception is it's it's a pretty big rift, actually. It's also, I think, got to do with the timing of the stuff, right? Like, it's been a really rough year for a lot of people. Um, all of a sudden, this thing comes out of the blue. The common denominator of people who tend to be making the large amounts of money with NFTs is a social graph that incorp that includes rich people in crypto. Um, so those people are very, very happy about it. And then there's lots of other people who are very, very unhappy about it. And I think that the association of kind of vulgar displays of wealth that we've seen with the medium itself hasn't done it any favors. Um, that being said, there's a bunch of people who, you know, in kind of the more curated networks like your super rares or your foundations or your Zoras or um, there's a lot of artists who at the same time have, you know, found the first market for their works and they're selling them for like two ETH. And that's a big deal because these are artists who previously there wasn't really much of a market around what they were doing. And so I think that's engendered a lot of goodwill. Um, it strikes a couple of things for me, right? Like, I think that um, we'll see more artists defect into crypto. The challenge is, though, like maybe I'll preempt it with this, right? Like I got interested in crypto, whatever, through an artistic interest in building stuff which in my mind has been a very like almost uncut like it's not it's not a field like it's not it's not a dimension in which art has been appreciated but if i use like say the catch-all term like protocol art my interest in this realm was like oh you know i like making things that spawn stuff in the world why can't that be done with code and actually this like some of the projects happening within let's say the ethereum space or whatever to me were like these incredible artworks that like engender belief they engender kind of like different modes of interaction with them they engender fandoms they engender you know so for me like and a lot of people i was close to in the arts who initially got interested in this we did so because we saw maybe a new a new potential for a different dimension of art or appreciation where you're like okay maybe art can do new stuff now right mm -hmm. like we're bored of the 20th century and the and the history books of you know and of course there is precedent for this there are artists that that did integrate like process into their practice but these were always things that were completely undervalued right and so if i look back to like the ico craze like the most generous reading of it um was that a lot of these were like art projects you know people were saying what if the world worked like this we could do create these crazy choreographies of people using these blockchains and and that to me was like incredibly exciting now I haven't seen a lot of, I mean, one, I haven't seen that narrative put forward with the NFTs. I mean, I don't think that like m what most people understand an NFT ecosystem to be, I don't see much of the art there being all that interesting. You know, it's not, it's not. It, and I think that also turns off or has turned off a lot of people who, you know, let's be real, like a lot of like artists who 
I mean, you could say the same for anything, I guess, but there's a lot of status games around, like, not liking something. There's a lot of yeah. status mm-hmm. games around having a few links that allow, that give you some criteria through which to moralize on things. Um, and the fact that uh, we haven't yet seen these tools kind of spawn new categories of art, even though I think we have, but most people don't understand that, um, has made it really difficult to state the case because a lot of people will come at it and be like, well, you know, this is, um, you know, one perpetuating previous power dynamics, which of course is like short-sighted because that's, I think that's a short-term thing. Um, number two, like what, you know, we're just selling JPEGs now. Like a lot of the famous artists who got involved in the space are just like going through old hard drives, you know, and finding some image to stick up there. I mean, it, it, it is a pretty impoverished view compared to, I mean, I'm not a fan of the like traditional art world necessarily, but like credit where it's due, right? When you go to like the Louvre or something, I mean, it, you know, it, it's a bit more spectacular than a, than a, than a JPEG on a, on a page, you know? Um, and so it's, it's, it's been difficult to, it's, it's difficult to state that case. And that's why ultimately I, I advocate for this kind of protocol art approach where I'm saying, no, actually, like if you treat this as kind of like a bit of a year zero opportunity where artists can get involved in this space once they're fluent enough with it to really express themselves in ways that weren't quite possible before, um, then that's a reason to be really excited. But at the same time, it's very hard to get that narrative out when, you know, you have the Winklevoss twins buying like, you know, awful street art posters, you know, for, for tens of millions of dollars. I mean, it's going to be difficult to, it's going to be difficult to state that case. Um, it's pretty widespread. And, and I'm, I mean, I think part of my burnout has been that I've definitely been trying to, uh, and, and I'm not sure whether I'm succeeding, but definitely trying to like, uh, uh, spread some good news amidst, you know, a very, very embattled, uh, uh, arts, uh, uh, community at the moment on this particular topic. It's interesting the way we both came came to this technology um, for the same end goal, but at different angles. You and I didn't know this about you. You came at it much more from okay, how does this become protocol art, and like, how is this more? You know, how does this redefine what we can create? If I'm interpreting what you said right, and and I came at it, how does this redefine things around the transactions and the and the disintermediation, transparency, trying to get rid of, you know, rent seekers and institutions along the way and, and essentially just help artists, right? I mean, as I always do, but but not not from the not from the artistic standpoint, right? It was much more, well, if, if you if we could do this, they can make more art, you know. So it's re- it's really interesting and and just like you're saying, I think your fears about like the Winklevi, you, you know, putting putting a negative connotation around it, and again, I, I think that's hype cycle. I think that I think, and I think they have they have vested interest in. It. I mean, they own Gemini. They 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 want to create the biggest market they can. Um, I think it's a similar one where to to Carly's point. I mean, my challenge has been the same. What you said, Carly, about like tr- artists are often the ones that are are kind of you know, and particularly when it comes to um, how this can affect them uh, from a career perspective. Um, and, and then, and I'm surprised you didn't mention this, I was waiting for it, but it's the, the energy consumption too, right? Be, and, and I think that goes to maybe what you meant by like some of the moralizing, right? Where, I mean, that I've, I've reached out to a lot of artists who are very technical forward and artistic forward 
you know, for years now on this space, and a lot of the pushback has been the, the energy consumption of blockchains, and that's fair, right? I mean, it's 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 it, there's no defense around that. I I tend to think that the people who are who have the most possible benefit from the reduction of that energy, whether they're good or bad actors, will solve it. In other words, if you know, if I'm if I'm minting or doing proof of stake or whatever, and I'm financially benefiting from that, but my costs are hurt because of energy, I will go to renewables faster. I will do, you know, and that might be a really, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm the farthest thing from some motherfucking libertarian, right? So, and I know that sounds like a very libertarian point of view, but it's also how capitalism works, right? I mean, it's like those for good and for bad, yeah. but, but it is, you know, and, and I know that the, you know the next iteration of the Ethereum blockchain is supposed to kind of solve for this. And there was um, some very smart people. I like also that it's a topic, like it's forcing people to confront just just carbon footprint. Generally, I doubt many people know the carbon footprint involved in, in streaming a song, but it's massive, you know. And so it's, it's binging it's, a show on Netflix. It's correct, correct. It's crazy, yeah, correct. So, but I, I, it is it, it's the the. I just in the I think you see that this is building blocks for art. I see it as building blocks, Legos that can be rejiggered for better. Fuck, I, I sound gross, but like for better commercial practices. And I only mean that because I want I want the commercial element to get to the artist's hands so they can keep doing it. Yeah, the, well, the two are inseparable. That's that's the thing, right? And it's like you, I mean, a couple of things on that point, right? Like. First off, I also think that the energy consumption issues around this stuff, most of the stuff I've read don't come from energy experts, right? Like it, it is possible that proof of work is very energy intensive, which it is. And all the statistics that are being circulated are completely wrong, which they are. <laughs> uh, and you also have the double side of this, which is that, you know, because of the nature of blockchains, so much stuff is being rendered transparent so as to make put a target on this space as opposed to right like i come from a music community that prints vinyl they print vinyl in the cheapest place they can print vinyl which is the czech republic all that stuff is shipped and then it gets shipped to a you know all across the world and then it gets shipped again and then it gets shipped again like you know and and so i mean many of these critiques look the 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 the, the energy and transaction and gas fees and all this kind of throughput issue will be solved because of defi yes like it's not going to be solved because of a few artists. Uh, that that is a narrative issue, and and the narrative is spread. And I think I agree with you. It's good. Um, my challenge with it, uh, I know a lot of the people who started perpetuating that narrative, is I told them I'm like by the end of year there will be, you know, ten proof of stake NFT services. Um, that was like two months ago, and there's already five. But but the but the the bigger point being is that again th that narrative over time maybe there's this kind of little hype cycle. But I think over time you're like well. We're introducing all these new dynamics we didn't have before where, you know, this stuff is traceable on chain. Another big issue that I think a lot of artists on the top end of things are really having a hard time with is the transparency over finances, yeah. um, which is a major thing, right? Like on, on both sides of the of the tail, by the way, right? Like either I'm making too much yep. or I'm not making enough. But either in either case, I don't want people to see that. Well, totally. And, I, and I've spoken to people, for example, you know, who were in the capital A art world, you know, who run probably one of the most manipulated centralized 
cultural kind of spheres you can imagine, right? Like their whole deal is about taking on six young artists who nobody in the world knows of. Nobody knows who they are. These are not popular figures and convincing very wealthy rich people, you know, old people that this is the hottest shit in the world and you need to buy this painting for $700,000. They're terrified by this because unless they enter into the NFT market with the transparent aspects of, you know, unless they hit similar numbers, this is really messing in some ways with with their whole game. That's right. That's right. Well, it, ar- it arbitrages shit, right? Like you put that, tra- it, you know, th- th- I mean, all of these deals that are done in, in secrecy when the buyers and there's an asymmetry between the buyers and the sellers and they don't have comps. What this does is it provides comps. It's like a real estate market. It's like your house isn't worth that much. You know why? Because the one next door sold for a tenth of that. And of course, there's, there's all kind of games going on because they're also all setting up buyers. I mean, I wonder how many of these big NFTs, how much of that money was transferred back to the buyer? You know, like... It's a good uh, point. Because, I mean, you could do that. Like, I, I'm not suggesting you do that. But like, if I have a friend that has $100 million in crypto and I post an NFT, I could easily say to them, hey, will you please bid a million dollars on this? I'll accept the bid. I'll send you the money back. But now you've just valued the rest of my portfolio at a million dollars. So you've just described venture capital, Matt, by the way. Yeah, well, and the art world. I mean, that's literally how the art world works. No, but, but, but just- and this is the thing that, that actually kind of terrifies me. Like if if you look at, at the way venture capital values companies, right? It is it is exactly what you just said. Ah, there's a, a pre-revenue company that's just an idea. Well, they have, you know, whatever. But we think we are going, we VC are going to invest x dollar into it right that then gives it a valuation on some multiple that's an abstraction right and then and then there's some liquidity event either a merger or sale or whatever the money just gets redistributed it never it never leaves it's and you can take it further like where like you look at a facebook or an instagram or whatever the money that is buying the ads is just being redistributed back. It, it's so fucking insane. And so I hadn't, I had never thought of what you just said, but of course that's what's happening. I mean, I don't know if you're saying that as, a, as an actual thing or just, if you're just guessing, but I would bet a lot of money. Of course that's what's happening. It's a thing. I mean, of course, like if you're smart, I don't know. I mean, like I, I haven't done it. I actually haven't minted an NFT, but like, if I was so inclined, of course I would do. If I had access to somebody who would be able to do that for me, why not? Like you just, I mean, the, but but all this to say again, this is the dance with the devil, right? Is like it, it there will be so many gross things, and ultimately it's a judgment call to say I prefer that the gross things are out in public, because I think for a lot of people, two years ago, talking about that dynamic in the art world was like an esoteric thing that would never make the news. You know, people weren't familiar that that kind of stuff happens. What you just mentioned in venture capital, this is out in the open now because people are saying, we're building a new internet. And they're like, well, look, there's all this crazy money laundering happening. You're like, yeah, it was always (laughs) happening. Crypto didn't invent that. But, but, But now you're, you're paying attention to it. And like my optimistic hope at least is that if in parallel you can have other things being developed that are like, look how bad the art world is. Um, and look how bad the art world becomes when it goes on chain. Why don't you just do another art world? But it's so interesting. But, but why are you saying the art? Like for me, I, 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 exactly the same thing. Substitute art world for major labels and major publishers. 
like exactly the same thing in 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 the the, sh the deal shrouded in mystery i i lived through it when you know fuck i don't care if who, who knows it when Ryko disc was sold um jp morgan sold it and we had to put a value on it and we were able to get a value um, Warner was Warner put a price on it. Why? Because Warner was about to go public, and Warner needed J.P. Morgan to value them. There was no—I mean, Ryko had some assets and everything, but it was purely we need a number, right, to make the capital markets happy. Ah, <laughs> tell us what that number is, and we got it. It was astronomical, you know, but it was purely it was dwarfed by the astronomical number then that, that Warner was able to go public with. It was a transaction cost. Right. And so all these things. And so, yeah, if this if, you know, who's a, a Justice Brandeis or whatever, sunlight is the best disinfectant. If that's the case with the art world, that's where I'm going with the music world. And I know that's why there's been so much pushback. I mean, you and I were both running up against the, the hills. And I, I mean, I, I talked at length about it. You have to stop bothering big blockchain startups with trying to get the major labels to adopt this. It's not worth the risk of the transparency. They don't want that, right? Like it, it has, And so, you know, I'm in the middle of a bunch of projects to try to shine that bright light on it. And again, I'm okay with the hype cycle around it just because it provides the liquidity to try these things for this window of time. I know that what I'm doing has a, both a solid business and moral firmament. So it's same with blockchain. Like I, I'm like, I, I don't care. Go do whatever it is that you want to do during this time. Because you could say the exact same things about the, the moral bankruptcy that we're talking about with NFTs with ICOs. Like there was 1,000% the same mentality. Let's just mint money out of nothing for some, uh, you know, unbelievably spurious claim. And that's the thing. And my only position on this stuff, which I think we agree on, is just like all of that can be true and none of that takes away the, the opportunity to build really cool shit. And I think that that will happen too. It's difficult to to maintain that fidelity of vision sometimes because it does sometimes feel like all the bad people are winning constantly. But but that's where you have to have your, you've got to have your compass. I mean, I always call it purpose, not product. And, and, and I'm curious actually what yours is. I mean, mine's, mine's well established. It's like, does this help artists create sustainable careers? If yes, do it. If not, don't do it. If you're unsure, let's figure it out. I mean, what is, what's your purpose? Like what, what, where's your, cause you, you seem effortlessly able to navigate these complexities with not only confidence but also with being right for a long enough period of time that like it's you know you you've got credit right like you've been right enough so that people go yeah, yeah, yeah. and i hope so i mean I, I i don't know i mean i think like well, you wouldn't be here if you didn't <laughs> that's kind no that's kind i i i guess there's there's two layers to it. i mean the, the the one layer is like i've been working in independent music since i was 18 either as a musician or I worked at labels. I think part of it is recovering is kind of like recovering a, an optimism that I went into that with, um, in the sense of like, I was very, I was a very naive person for a very long time. I kind of like became cynical for a period of time. And then I became after that, like what's the word, like persistent or something where I'm like, actually, no, this could be better. And like, and I guess the, 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 I don't want to romanticize the DIY thing too much, but like, I'm very much a like do stuff person. And that's, and not, and that's not even just like a, you know, like a, 
whatever like a, a, a self-aggrandizing thing i think that's also got to do with like i have weird mental health i have like i need to be doing stuff like if i don't do stuff i feel like despondent and and awful um and then there's that other side too which is kind of again recovering like a sense of optimism or purpose is that i'm also just like so disappointed by how boring things are that totally I desperately like I really need to to, to like start to my week. Brain. Yeah. yeah, I I to start my week I need to be like, oh no, actually like you know, I was promised that like music and the arts, you know, <laughs> I could have gone into other fields. You know what I mean? I, I could have gone into loads of different fields. I like I'm quite clever, you know, like I, I had options to do stuff and I was like, no, I'm gonna go into the arts. And then we're here and I'm like, you know, we're kind of like aesthetically like we recycle the twentieth century constantly like all the shit that the nerdy shit I was into of like, you know, weird people, you know, I, I like fell in love with like the Urcam legacy. I don't know if that means anything to anybody, but like, you know, there's this legacy of like clever engineers, like making sounds that have never been heard before. I was so, I'm, I'm so like enamored. I'm such like a frustrated modernist in that way. Like I want to like, I want to see a flying car, you know, like I do genuinely want to see that. And so, yeah, so that's the other drive in the sense is that like, I'm just like, I, so underwhelmed often that like so it's 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 interesting so many different i I relate deeply to all of that i mean i I think like i tell my students i tell myself this it's like the 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 only way to battle what was the phrase that we were talking at the beginning of the podcast about just just the the persistent just kind of dread that 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 is this time is to make shit right like i think that that, like and that's you've got to make stuff and and whatever that is um, it's interesting you bring up modernism. Like I went on, I had, I was on drugs at the time for my headache. So I was, I was thinking in, in very different ways and, or I don't know, maybe just enhanced ways, but like I had this, just the, the most clear vision ever of how the metaverse is, is just postmodernism, right? Where, where like, there's a straight line from, from, um, you know, early, early modernism or late modernism going from, you know, T.S. Eliot, Juno Barnes, any of those people all the way through to like Frank Geary and accretion and in literature, John Barth, all those people in pension. And then, and then I saw, I saw the ad for the new space, space jam, the basketball movie. Have you seen this? The original. I've never seen the original one or whatever. No, I've never seen that, but I saw this ad and it's, it's, they literally flip the, it's the metaverse right and what the metaverse is is postmodernism right because you've got i don't know who the basketball player is but he's talking at various stages to you know old school bugs bunny and then and and, and so like my tweet storm was like i was just listing kind of these these pivot points and i think satoshi's white paper was a pivot point 2008 was a pivot point right and 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 then saying but i've got the order wrong but it doesn't matter that's the point, right? And, and and so then you get into this 50-50 chance that we're in a sim, right? And 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 I think it's increasingly we're 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 closer to that. I think that the odds are beginning to tilt closer to to sim than not sim. And and then you start stirring metaverse in. Um, it gets all the more important to take control of your life and your destiny by making things, right? That's that's all we have left because money and all the other kind of signifiers of control go away and what you're left with is what you create i'd also recommend uh, there's an amazing movie i didn't put this on my three things i'm excited about but i am actually excited about it the um are you familiar with the director ari Folman? what's he done he did yeah, not off the top. 
he did Waltz with Bashir, which was like his really famous oh, movie yes. that was excellent. Yes. Yeah, I think Palm Pictures put that out. So it it was a big one. I mean, I I, I but, remember. But yeah, he yeah, did yeah. a film with Robin Wright um, called The Congress which is based on an old Stanislav Lem book called the Futurological Congress. Um, and it, he basically repurposed it for a lot of, it's basically a lot of metaverse themes. It's excellent. It's really good. And it's funny, it didn't pick up, but I think it came out like way before this conversation um, existed. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, and, and on that topic too, I mean, like my position on the metaverse ultimately is like, maybe again, this is the frustrated modernist thing, but but I'm like, it's kind of a two-way street, right? It's like, I I want more like smart contracts initiating transnational club yes. networks yes. that everyone owns, unless unless Second Life clubbing, you know? Because because <laughs> like, this, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like I worked, I actually did a project. On, I I did one of the first concerts in Second Life when I was like a child. You. Of course you um, did. Of course you did. Yes. And uh, uh, see, but that's what I mean. The order doesn't matter. Right. Like this, like, of course you did. Of course you did a concert in Second Life in 1995 or whatever, which is which you're about to do again. Tell me it's not a sim. Like, it, it, of course it is. <laughs> but 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 like, I want you to finish that sentence. But I also want you to talk because I think where you're hitting at there is like guilt. Right. Like, I mean, with that 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 form of and, and it's it's one of your ideas that, that many of your ideas stay with me. But that one in particular is the one like I'll have these just like shocks of of kind of consciousness around and i can't quite get there and you're there and like i i have you written about it much i mean i know you talk about it a lot but is there is there kind of the the white paper on that a, a little bit i mean i i wrote a i don't do a lot of writing because i hate it like i literally <laughs> hate it <laughs> i just it's i find it like I, you know i'm in my head a lot and like if you leave me like i'm really good in conversation with people because there's prompts and you also have to, you have to, you have to like make a point when you're talking to somebody, like usually. You have to, no one's, yeah. no one's, no one's given me that rule. <laughs> I was unaware of that rule. But when you're left to your own devices and then you're just writing, like I, I can't do it. I can do it with music, but like with thoughts, I, I just, I hate it. But I did write a, I wrote something for, it was for like the Venice Biennale. This was a, a couple years, maybe like 2018 or something, um, talking about Dow guilt. So like decentralized sort of centralized autonomous organizations and 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 thinking about like the history of guilds because i learned a little bit about the history of guilds um and specifically the hanseatic league which is like a, a very prominent thing in northern europe um and it just seemed like there were a lot of parallels at the time with some of the issues we were facing with web 2 and some of these tools that are being developed you're like oh, okay like you know people don't know this but like the hanseatic league had its own army it had its own taxation system um cities that were part of the Hanseatic League um, survived famine, whereas cities that were part of the monarchic uh, states at the time uh, starved. Um, you can go to the Guildhall in London, which still has its own mayor. A lot of people don't know this, but like London has two mayors. It has the mayor of the city of London and you have the Guild mayor. Um, so these traditions still kind of exist because it was, and London was part of that league. It was part of that uh, trade network and they had their own architecture there was all kind of problems with it too don't get me wrong which maybe you're also <laughs> worth thinking about like i mean i i'm no expert on guilds i've definitely but 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 it just seemed like it seemed like okay well you know you had this kind of like centralized state system at the time with these kings and they were doing a really shitty job because obviously i mean imagine how abstract it was to live in a kingdom 
uh, you know, with no telecommunication systems, right? Like, how are you supposed to govern that? I guess going back to religion, that's probably one of the functions it served. And then uh, the the artisans and the tradespeople came up with these guilds to be able to determine their own prices and negotiate with the state um, because they felt like they had a better handle on their needs than this abstract state that existed somewhere else. And I was like, okay, well, there's, it may be a, an obvious point, but there's, there's some kind of a parallel here between, you know, like smaller communities of artists who have very idiosyncratic needs and your Spotify, where you have a King Daniel Eek or whatever his name is. He's making these arbit arbitrary decisions, or not not arbitrary, but he's making decisions, uh, you know, that, that speak very much to the, the court around him, right? Like there's a few people around him. I know there's a Taylor Swift and a Bruno Mars or whatever. And those decisions are being made with those people in mind and i'm like i'm the little like tradesperson over here being like i make a living like like don't fuck me you know like don't like that like i'm not bruno mars um and and it's and it's and it's ridiculous it, it it's kind of barbaric in a sense to think that a decision that would benefit bruno mars would benefit me or benefit you know the community in south africa making this specific kind of music that like it won't it won't and so so the guild the guild analogy and and DAOs ostensibly are a guild model, um, and so so the the analogy I think rings true. Where you're like, no, what you can have is we can share the common a common network and a common protocol, and then build these little you know build these little guilds that that yeah. have a protocol, have a belief system. You can always leave if you don't want to be there. But that to me seems far more progressive and interesting a proposal than again the the this idea that kind of one size fits all, very abstract. Uh, proclamations from a pie, you know, which speaks so much. I mean, one of my, my most kind of um, uh, you know repeated lines is like, th "There's, there's not one record industry, but it, you know, for the consumer, and and for you, you know the the person who's not really involved in this, they think the record industry is the three major labels, a handful of publishers, and Spotify, and you know, it's like, you know, that represents about point oh oh one of the people that are making music. And I'm not talking about people just like picking up a guitar and playing it like, but like actively working in the industry. And, and yet, and I think you, you framed it up really well, massively underrepresented in terms of ways, the structures and the deals are built and nothing points to that better than the user centric. was it Dan? The listener centric versus the kind of modeling system in which Spotify pays out on. I mean, like that's so weighted to to make the Bruno Mars enrich the Bruno Marses of the world and so against the individual artist. And it's like people don't know about it, but it's just patently unfair. Like, I mean, like it's objectively like it's wrong. It's just objectively wrong. Like you can't look at something like that and go, oh, OK, I can see both sides of that. You can't, you know, <laughs> like there isn't there isn't another side to it. And I would take I would take it further. I mean, it's it's a source of great uh, discomfort for me that given how long I've been thinking on this issue, the best point made about it was made by my partner, Holly, and she made it from the beginning, like literally the first time she ever encountered Spotify and she's stuck to this point for a decade. And it's, I've only just recently been like, yeah, that was the best point ever. Um, but even further than the user-centric thing is just like the absurdity that all music be valued based on per play. Right. That, that that in and of itself is a decree that if you don't know anything about music makes sense. But if you do, it's like, and her whole point, literally when, when she first encountered Spotify, she was like, well, how does Penderecki get paid? 
because I don't want to listen to Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima a thousand <laughs> times a month. Mm-hmm. That's come up on but the that podcast, actually. Yeah, exactly. But that doesn't but, but, mean it's but, not valuable. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's not valuable. Like, and, and you extend the analogy to film, right? It's like Tarkovsky movies. Like, are you going to tell me that a Tarkovsky movie is not valuable because I'm not prepared to play it as many times as your kid wants to play Frozen, right? Like, it's it's wrong. It's it's a very it's, it's objectively wrong. Yeah, it, it's wrong, and it's fine for them. And that's you know my position on it too. With Spotify, is I'm like I don't care. I mean, like I hope Taylor Swift's fine, and like she should have a system that works for her. I just don't want it to. I don't want my friends to not be able to make a living because of that. That. So the two can coexist. It's yeah, totally sure. chill. It's not binary. It's not binary. But but I think it's it's. I mean, I, I I that's why I say I try to use my whatever voice I have to like educate not artists but also consumers on you know, different music industries. And if COVID didn't bring that into stark relief, I don't know what will. Right? Where where it, it, you know I mean, and, and I wrote a lot about this and talked with a lot of artists. You know, those who had publishing deals had their music in film or TV. You know, they they could kind of make it through this. Right. Um, those who were purely touring, you know, couldn't. And then even worse, the people that were just in the band or or the road managers or whatever. No shit. They're driving Amazon trucks now. They're not coming back. So um, the guilds and I mean, and that wraps to the interdependence, right? I mean, that 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 that's how you kind of tie that's that's how you little if i put bows around things that's how i put the bow around what your your work is right the interdependence podcast and trying to unravel this this topic yeah yeah basically i mean like the interdependence thing came from what's the word i mean for years it seemed like again like i was like that independent music zealot i was super into it and basically framed my position my whole life where i'm pursuing that um pretty much around like i mean you can criticize spotify on this you could talk about like the uber economy or the app economy over the time i was in san francisco the term independence just seemed to like grow uh, to the point whereby it became you know like i teach i teach a class for example at like at clive davis um myu and it it's striking to me how you know in a program that's often geared toward creating kind of popular musicians. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if, if this, if this is a, an equivalent observation at, at Berkeley, but like a program that's, that's geared toward this, you know, the goal and the desire has been since I started there in like 2017 or whatever, people want to be independent. That is like the, that is the, 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 the desire. That's the kind of like dominant narrative is like, it's very much based on individual desires. It's very much based upon, not wanting for any institutions to kind of get in the way of your ambitions. And it's been very much driven by, I don't think it's a necessarily bad um, thing to want for, for oneself, but like it's been driven by an app economy that's told everybody who's a certain age that all you need is a phone and a laptop and like a, you know, and a little sound card, you know, and, and you can, and the world can be yours. And the, the challenge with that being is that that narrative is about as flawed to me as what you described earlier, George, which is this viewing, you know, viewing the whole world based on the exception, like viewing the whole music industry based on the exception, the exception being, and of course, then even when you drill into the exception of the pop musician, there is nothing independent about the pop music. I mean, like pop, mu- pop, pop structures of the constructing these records are like feats of remarkable human coordination. In fact, I'm, I admire 
I admire how a Beyonce record comes together, but you're not talking about one person. This is this is like promo language right now. Like like there are hundreds, if not thousands, sometimes of people who come together to make the illusion of independence possible, right? So so that's where the kind of inter interdependence part comes from, is I'm like having to have this conversation with people loads and loads of times. I'm like, we, you know, so Holly and uh, my partner and I are signed to a famous independent label, 4AD. 4AD, Ivo. Exactly. It, it's, you know, but when when you see this kind of like independence narrative kind of proliferate, it's become increasingly important to remind people that there's a big difference between establishing kind of interdependent networks in which often invisible people make it possible for an individual to thrive and the isolation economy of apps and Ableton and, you know, paying, paying for views on Instagram or whatever, like buying ads, like being alone, not having a guide rail. Right. And like, and some, and somewhere in the middle of that, you know, there are opportunities to find like a healthy balance. There's no doubt that like, I don't have much experience from it, but like, it seems pretty well covered that like there was a concentration of power in the record industry and in many other industries that needed to be broken up at a certain period of time that the rebellious independence ideas of like early rough trade and stuff like that were very, very necessary. They all got bought. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <That's>, um, <laughs> but, the, but the point being is that, you know, it felt like that, it feels like that narrative needs to be wound back a little bit where you're like, actually no, the opportunity at least so you know, we talk a lot about Web3 stuff and it's like the opportunity with Web3 is like, how do you build like minimum viable institutions where you're doing all the cool stuff that you need, where you need a supportive network of people, you need for people to get paid, you need to let other people know, you know, that, that money needs to come in in order for cool cultural things to happen. Um, but you can stay weird. Exactly. And that's, but that's, and that's how it existed. It only existed for that. It, it, it could only happen because we had these institutions. So, yeah. So interdependence just felt like it, like a good, I mean, it's an easy, it's an easy term to use, obviously, because when people say independence, you can, you can plant that little meme in their head and they think, oh, independent. is this independent? Is it, um, should make an NFT out of it. I, I guess. But I've seen it be picked up, actually. Like a lot of people in Web3 start using it now, which is cool. Good, good. But Dan, chime in here because you you've you've lived this. I mean, you lived this boots on the ground. That 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 bifurcation between, you know, the team that has to be behind there and and then the artist. And oh, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on? What yeah, I mean, I agree with everything Matt's saying. And some of it is is there's the effort of the team and all the different players involved. But there's also just kind of the the knowledge. No standalone independent artist is going to have the knowledge of the marketing team and the lawyers and the booking agent. And it's so it's 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 not just the work that everyone's doing; it's the expertise everyone brings to the table. And so, I mean, that's interesting. Like, how do you? It, but that knowledge is used to control the artist at the same time. And so, how do you kind of democratize the access to that knowledge, and provide access to teams that can act on that knowledge, without screwing the artist, and making sure the artist gets their fair share because it's their creative product at the end of the day that is what you know, consumers and fans are going to get excited about? It's a great question. I mean, like I, I put on my list of things I'm excited about. Um, I've been joking around with this idea of a headless band. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll qualify why that, why that speaks to what you're talking to. I think so, so a few things, right? Like in a way, you know, my position on it, which, which I think I've already established is like the truth of the record industry was that it was always interdependent, but the, 
the distance between the truth and public perception was massive, right? Yeah. Because if you're in 1965, you don't know how things are made. You have no access. You see the cool picture and you hear the record and you think, oh, wow, it's crazy that Elvis is so talented or whatever. Right? <laughs> um, and then progressively over time, these these things have demystified in numerous ways, right? So like there's a degree of demystification that happened with the boom of like independent labels, right? Because like all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, I could just do this, right? Like we could do this together because actually all it is, is you need someone to like print the records and you need to record something and it's not trivial, but but this is an accomplishable task. Like we can do this. Um, and then like welcome the internet and social media or whatever to the point whereby, you know, I don't understand still how some of these, like how the promotional narrative endures when it's so traceable. Like, I mean, it's really frustrating. I mean, this is part of the 20th century hangover. It's really frustrating that you're like, People still talk. I have students who come to me with genuine anxiety saying, I, you know, I really want to do this music thing, but I see these pop stars and I don't know how I could possibly do all the work that they do. Like, I, I'm a really good singer, but I'm not a good producer and I'm not, I'm certainly not a film director and I'm not a fashion designer. And I'm like, how do you have anxiety about this? Like Kanye has, Kanye has like thousands of people on payroll. Like, how how has that mystique not been somewhat pierced, right? That you'd think that by this point we would have got we would have we would have figured that out, right? So, so the, the, my proposal, which I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's feasible, and this is kind of the big the big question mark is like, how would one, um, like could you put forward, um, a different conception of a band or uh, an icon or a pop star and i think there's some people who've, who have kind of done this a little bit whether deliberately or kind of just through intuition um where the interdependence of it and the 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 uh, uh, was was quite open and transparent and where we you know is it possible to have a successful cultural product that doesn't succumb to the myth of the lone genius we haven't tried that that much but my gut says now is a decent time to try that part of the reason being is that now everybody is an artist right like everybody for better or worse has access to the tools everybody has wants to participate in something and, and that act of participation is like an aesthetic act i think similar to crypto you know there's so many corollaries between like the act of participating in shilling crypto and the act of shilling a boy band or something like the bts army and the Link Marines yeah. are like the same aesthetic yeah. experience, right? People yeah. want to pump and dump. Yeah. They they want to participate in this in this thing, and you're like, if you could just structure that, you know what I mean? Like, if you could structure that, that's a that is a different cultural product, and like I think that cultural product may just win. So this is what I was joking about with headless bands. I don't know if you know about the the headless brands thesis. It's a group of friends. They're really great. Uh, called Other Internet, and they wrote this piece. Uh, like they did this piece of writing a couple of years ago about headless brands and, and part of the idea was like look at bitcoin right like bitcoin doesn't have a leader right like bitcoin is this kind of brand that exists with a decentralized kind of um you know no like it's 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 built on decentralized contributions and it, it exists through the contributions the kind of half coordinated contributions of a wide network of people under one banner 
and they're trying to say look that's quite different and i was like okay well you take that and you talk about a band it's like you're not a headless brand but a headless band like could you be in a band with a thousand people globally and could you all get to play the songs hmm. and of course there's precedence to this right like where cover bands have this right like like you know like I, I saw Bon Jovi in my undergrad uh, student <laughs> union, you know, and they were, they were incredible. I mean, but, you know, but, but cover bands kind of have this a little bit where you have a shared canon and people participate in fandom and those kind of arrangements, I think, in which, you know, that to me is a more dangerous idea and maybe more feasible than, you know, trying to think using Web3 tools to create the next label that kind of works how a label would have worked in 1980, but no, it's just that it. that's skeuomorphic. You can't do it though. And, and and so I mean, I've kept this under wraps, but this is as good a time as any to 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 lay it out there. And it'll also force me to get the white paper published before this goes live. But I've been working for the past couple months on a project called The Song That Owns Itself, um, which which will show the and it'll be organized through a DAO, and it will show all the interdependence via how the song pays out and it pays out to to the artists or artist who composes it and, and based on allocations of tokens but as well as to the fans and so that, that you know that's the skew, uh, the heuristic that I'm I'm using around this and and I've really tried to keep it quiet because once you once you kind of get that idea in your head you see the inversion of everything and i really want i need the white paper out there before it starts being talked about because i can't have another one of my ideas stolen <laughs> no i think that's a that's a but, great idea though well i will be recruiting your your help on it but i mean i'm writing the dow right now i've got some amazing artists that are contributing and like once people and i've talked to people at pretty high levels about it that are you know of minds like everybody on this call once they get that metaphor it does show how you have to rethink this from the bottom up, not some skeuomorphic perspective of okay, let's use let's have a Web three label. Like that's gross. That's 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 a bad use of. But this music technology. is a weird example for all this, right? Because the the creator is plastered everywhere. So the cre you hear their voice, you see their face in the music video, you see their face on the promotional material. It's very creator forward. Where if you look at everything you were just describing, Matt, about you know the team being recognized and stuff, I think of. Um, like Marvel and the Avengers, right? Where there's recognition for the actors that play the role and the directors and the people that write comic books and the the video games. There, the t and people are recognized for the visual effects. There is a much more, even though it's still centralized, it's all owned by Disney and very controlled. There is not a mystique of. I can't go into film because I can't write, direct, act, and do the visual effects for an Iron Man movie. Totally. It's it's yep. just because music so often comes from one or a small group of people and is sold that way versus other industries where all the contributions are celebrated kind of on a cultural level where even though in music we celebrate we celebrate producers and but engineers get a small amount of recognition and session players get a small amount of recognition within small niches you know with iron nobody knows who james jamerson yeah. is. Right? yeah but you could argue nobody knows the name of the cinematographer for you know francis ford coppola or something i mean some people do if you're a nerd you do right carly do you see adjacencies in in your work i think about like what you've written with sex tech and, and those types of things is there are there parallels that can be drawn 
I think within sex tech in particular, everyone is just trying to build new platforms because it doesn't like the Instagrams, the Facebooks don't work, but it's for very different reasons. Like the the area itself has been deemed uh, I don't know, offensive or unsuitable for people. And so they've had to hide in these really dark corners of the Internet. And so I think a lot of the discussion is less about how to integrate with current with the current major platforms and just building entirely new communities. And it's all community based, but none of the status quo works within sex tech. And so you do see like an Instagram rival. There's a new platform called Lipzine because literally the definition of adult content by, by definition as a sex tech company, you cannot exist on the platform. And, you know, I talked about it before this summer when there was the Women of Sex Tech conference and they had to use this like really unknown platform because Zoom, YouTube, all these other platforms, they're immediately just banned. They're very intellectual, high level discussions and it's all about inclusivity. But because the word sex appears, they can't. So there are some applications within blockchain as well and smart contracts that you do see happening. And. And actually within the sex tech community, there's a lot of talk about how sex workers have really fueled a lot of the progress of the internet. You look at something like OnlyFans, which is also, you know, the latest thing, but it's like sex workers have long since, or just anyone that works within the field of sex, not sex workers per se, but they haven't been allowed to to participate so they've had to kind of create their own their own platforms and then they're always the ones who drive it and then the first ones kicked off so it's like a really disappointing area of the internet the ones who drive it and kicked off yeah exactly they they have to find new ways and then they're immediately excluded once it becomes mainstream and and only fans is the latest example and then you think of like you know earlier days with the like personals on craigslist and stuff these were used also very much to protect people who were engaging in sex work and, you know, create these bad date lists and all these things and to find customers, but also be able to flag people. And then FOSTA, the bill in the U.S., making all of these, you know, deemed illegal. There's no longer a personal section. And and they frame it so often around the protection of children, which, of course, is extremely important. But it's kind of that one size fits all again, where you throw this net and you say this is dangerous. And then the people who it's literally saving, particularly young trans sex workers who don't have any other economic opportunities are then back on the streets because they can't use the Internet. So in the sex tech industry, it's been really interesting to watch it progress. And there there are people who leverage smart contracts and blockchain, but I think it's the same disconnect as I was seeing in 2015 with artists where it's like it just feels so far from what they're doing they can't really see themselves so you have a few of those kind of visionaries like Cindy Gallup who have been at this for 11 years trying to create different social sex platforms and you know maybe now there is more interest but it's it's such a far reach for some of these people I think to think like it sounds great but it sounds like too big of a lift for me to become like really actively engaged so i think it's the exact same progression as art, as artists as musicians and it will just take time unfortunately the platforms need to become easier to use the learning curve needs to go away the jargon needs to disappear 
And until then, it's like, again, a lot of really interesting, hardworking people with really good ideas, but it's such a slow, they have even more barriers. I would think that there's, for good and bad, no other industry that, that would be more embracing of decentralization. Yeah. Yeah. The, for all the reasons well, the, you just the said. bad dates list thing is really real, you know, like there's a lot of, a, a lot of. Well, just to stop being kicked off a platform. Well, yeah, exactly. But when you have to constantly rebuild a community you, and you lose all of that legacy stuff because all of a sudden all of that work because you didn't own it is taken away from you. But that, MySpace. But I mean, that that's the premise of decentralization. I mean, that's exactly, you know, that's the main thrust of it. Yeah. And there is, there is some talk around like payment processing on the blockchain, of course, like via smart contracts and things like that. But I think sex tech as an industry is still so new that... Um, it's going to take that much longer for people to actually get comfortable feeling like these are things that actually not only can benefit them, but that they can grasp. Because if you ask anyone, just like I was asking artists in 2015 to A, understand the concept of blockchain and B, see how it could benefit them, the, I think the understanding level, the education part needs to go away before you can start encouraging people to see the benefits for themselves. And I think that's where we are now. That's why that was my question to Matt. It's like, okay, so now that we all understand at a high level, the word crypto is no longer a buzzword. Blockchain isn't a buzzword like it was. It's still maybe a, a, understandably a difficult concept tech, from a technical perspective. But when you have, when you can stop kind of like very granularly explaining the what, the why, the where, the who, and you can focus on the applications and the benefits, it becomes a lot easier to get that mass adoption. And it is kind of crazy because like, you know, I think had a, if a scribe was launching now, it'd be hugely successful. Then great. It was just way too early. And so that's the problem I think with so much of this is the ideas come before people are ready to actually use them. Well, eventually the technology becomes subservient to the application or the or the, the use case. I mean, it, it's the reason why, <laughs> I mean, I've said it a million times, we'll know blockchain has arrived when we stop saying the word blockchain. Guess what? We're here because people are now saying NFTs and social totally. tokens, which guess what? Can't exist without blockchain. Anyway, what an amazing conversation. I love that though, Carly. I'd love to like go down that rabbit hole a bit more because I always say, you know, music's the canary in the coal mine. The way you frame it, it's it's sex tech and, and 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 this is hard for me to kind of put the right words around it so forgive me but or porn or whatever that that is the canary in the coal mine Th those tend to go first and build the structures i had never thought yeah but then they get kicked off yes and no right i mean Pornhub's one of the most trafficked sites on the internet right and and so it's controlled but, by a very you know, it's, small it's group of of men I, again I'm I'm out of my depth, but it, it it seems like there should be decentralization. It seems like that would be something, and even things just like to your point about what were you saying about like Craigslist, like the, the I guess like predator records or whatever. Because like, you could there's a personal section, and so people would use that. No, 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 but like keeping track. Oh, the, the bad of, dates, of, like alerting. Bad yes. dates list. Yeah. Like it seems like that a blockchain immutable records on that like would be a, a great absolutely tool for that. Where like you go onto this registry that's decentralized. And then people can check to get your reputation. To and smart contract payments, because also a sure. lot of sex workers then don't get paid or they, you know, they go, they go under the guise of this is going to be a fair interaction and it's not. And it's, but again, it's like, it's, I think conceptually a larger leap for some people. Um, but you do see some, some really interesting stuff happening in the space as well. 
Incidentally, for what it's worth, I actually worked at Craigslist around about that time. Really? And I know Cindy Gallup. Quite, yeah, it's funny. I, I didn't expect that to come up, but uh, yeah, it's it's an area that like I know strangely know more about than 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 many would expect because I worked on some projects around about the time in that in that area. So you actually worked for Craigslist? Yeah, yeah, that, that's why I was in San Francisco. I worked for Craigslist oh, for years. Nice. I can't talk too much about the internal discussions around that because I remember that being a big deal. Yeah. Um, but the uh, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a fascinating area. Um, I'm also I, I also did some work for the Kinsey Institute uh, around about the same time, um, but specifically looking at um, specifically looking at communities of need around uh, like gender identity or sexual identity, because um, you kind of had like a big problem there where like and one of the the projects that Kinsey was doing at the time that was pretty cool was basically trying to intercept and identify people who needed support or information through the uh, porn sites. Mm -hmm. So like basically like the whole idea of the project that, that I helped out on was basically to try and serve people um, surveys based upon the ad networks that were built into the porn sites. Um, so if you were searching for a, for a certain kind of thing and you were from an area that was where there's a high likelihood of, of there being a stigma for you being gay or trans or something like that, you could use the ad system to, um, to serve people uh, questionnaires. Um, and of course for, for Kinsey, that stuff is, is, is doubly beneficial, right? Cause on the one hand they managed to get more data and information about people. And on the other hand, they actually get to serve people information about what they might be curious about, you know, cause you've got a lot of teenagers who are like, I'm into this and I, you know, and actually the porn site is the only place where... And often the worst representation. That's Cindy's whole thing, too, is, you know, like you're interested in, in maybe exploring your sexuality and then you're given only imagery that comes from a straight male's lens. And so it is so kind of... It, it doesn't actually serve you. But on a recent... Because um, I'm a part of the Women of Sex Tech community and Cindy Gallup was talking in a recent... Um, I think it was actually on Clubhouse and... And she was talking about the retargeting of ads and like this whole, the whole conversation is about how it can, it can feel like an invasion of privacy and they know too much about you and there's no control of your data, but how well these ads work. And I mentioned it on this podcast too, because George talks often about how Instagram serves him the ads that he wants. It works really well. They've dialed in what he's looking for. And Cindy was giving an example that she kept seeing this beautiful bedspread and eventually she was like, fuck it, I'm going to buy it. I love this bedspread. I keep seeing it. I want it now. And she was saying like, if only sex tech companies were allowed to participate, like people hear sex and they get so weird about it, but there are tools, you know, there's, it's community-based. It's, it's actual tools for people with disabilities who can't participate in, you know, like what we see as sex. It's, it's like legal resources it's all these things and imagine if you were be able if you were actually served targeted ads to help you feel comfortable with your sexuality to explore it it's such a it's such a crucial part i think of human nature and the internet for whatever reason has not figured a way out to serve the community and and not like I guess infuriate like there must be some so totally. much pushback. Well, this is another vote. It's another vote for Web three though too, right? Because the double edged sword on that is that like that's a great opportunity and also collating like creating a new category, which I'm sure is already done, but like uh, within a, a a private kind of central server 
to to collect information about you know an underrepresented mm-hmm. person's sexuality in a specific place yeah and all of a sudden you know they get a pamphlet in the mail and their mom picks it up or something like that right there exactly so so it's kind of like another vote for web three in a sense and this i think jumps to back to the like the bigger point is like i think you're right george right like, like we don't call it blockchain anymore that was what happened in 2016 right in five years time we won't call them nfts anymore that will be like a, a no. funny historical thing you know it'll be like a, a weird terrible name yeah i mean because no one thought about, i mean it's ridiculous you know. um but but the real point i mean i use it's funny i'm dealing with this in like my other life with music at the moment so you know holly and i've been working a lot with machine learning at, um um and it's it's odd like for the for the past five years you know like every time we talk to people about it we're like basically have to give them an essay to explain why this is significant um and recently you know we've been working with some people and now we have a tool where you can sing like a flute and that's it yeah and it's got and it's gone it's a a heuristic yeah exactly it's gone from like a phd presentation on something to being like hey i'm gonna sing like a flute in front of you (laughs) you know and and it's and it's it it always requires and it's the same it's the same in this space is like if there was a, a basket of ideas that I know will not require any further demonstration or any further explanation, one of the big ones is, for example, like zero knowledge proofs, which is, if you're talking about like sex work or even on the kind of like the consumers of sex work side, the ability to provide reputation based systems that don't, that aren't tied to your social security number or something like that. Like the second that exists, you won't need to explain it because everybody will do it. It will just be the thing, you know, and, 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 and it's kind of the same in this kind of DAO E realm where it's like, okay, there's a gajillion ways that people are going to experiment with it. There's going to probably be 20 ways that like, once you've seen it work, you're going to be like, well, fuck everything else. I'm just going to do this because this, exactly. it just makes sense. And, and, and the current wave of it's a job to be done. Thing. Yeah. You know, you move from that solution looking for a problem, but you can reframe that to solution looking for a use case that hits that Clark's law of sufficient technologies indistinguishable from magic. That, and, and you see that over and over again. And the challenge for entrepreneurs, and, and to Carly's point about about um, a, a scribe, is, is surviving long enough so that you can maximize in that time where there is the information asymmetries, where you actually do see the future. But waiting for the customer or for a use case to come around for for the for the later adopters to see it, because once the later adopters have seen it, you can't be an entrepreneur in that space anymore. It's too late. And so, I mean, the the job of the entrepreneur is to to have the vision in the future, but to survive long enough to find product market fit. And if it was any other way, there would be no opportunity, right? But uh, we should get to trace cositas. I could do this all day with Matt. I mean, if this is why, uh, <laughs> why you're amazing. You're kind. Yeah. Thank you. Who wants to start? <laughs> Maybe the guest should start. Matt, you want to kick it off? Uh, is it, w- w- you just spoke Spanish, uh, so I'm not sure what the question <laughs> well, was. Oh, I did. Three things. <laughs> oh, three, sorry, three things. Three. Um, <laughs> three little things. Tres cositas. Okay, so, so three things I'm excited about. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I'll try and keep it brief, right? Um the week that everybody in the world was freaking out about uh, a beeple selling for 69 million at Christie's, um, open law, uh, was, were sitting in a hearing in the state of Wyoming to, uh, start the process for the official approval of Dow LLCs, 
Hmm. Um, my like. So I mean, I've it, never seen the difference between them, right? I mean, to me, a DAO is an LLC ascribed on a smart contract. I don't, I don't understand how it's anything else. There you go. So, so the the state of Wyoming is is formally starting the process to approve them and to acknowledge them and recognize them. Great. Um, and my like my like time capsule uh, uh thing that is you know in I do believe in ten years time, you know when everyone's panicking about what a people selling at Christie's means for the future of culture, um, we'll look back and be like, oh no, that was the week that they started the process to approve DAO LLCs because that's going to be a way bigger deal. Um, so that's one thing I'm it excited is a about. Way deal, but, um, and that, I mean, that goes to the, to the song that owns itself. I mean, the whole thesis that I'm putting forward is it's an LLC, an operating agreement amongst the stakeholders and then put onto a smart contract. That's a DAO. So you're saying that now there will be, it'll be recognized by, by law. I've always just said, well, look, we'll put the rules up here and then you have rule of law to enforce the contract. But I, I got to dive deeper in that. That's awesome. Totally. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, it, it's kind of, it, it's an opportunity for basically a bridge between off-chain, on-chain assets, right? Like, yep. cause you can, exactly. you can formalize it as an LLC and then you can have, it's funny, we're, we're working on something that, that, that would also kind of uh, uh, enjoy or, or is kind of like well, pl- is planning to to be enacted in that way when when we uh, uh, get approval. But but it's basically this idea of like, oh, you don't have to like get everything on chain. You can just have an on chain entity, i.e. a DAO, interact points to it, yep. interact with something that interacts with something off chain. We don't have to wait for all these things to come on chain. Right. Um, so that's one thing I'm excited about. Um, the second thing I think is like, I don't know if you all have checked out Polygon. Um, which is like a layer two. It's basically like, it's kind of like, um, I mean, there's many of these, but I've been playing with it this week. It's kind of like, you know, what the liquid network was, is supposed to be for Bitcoin, but for Ethereum. Um, so when we're talking about like uh, social tokens or DAOs or minting things, um, you know, I was able to, for like less than five bucks, uh, mint 10 million tokens, um, transact them for almost nothing um there's a service called coinvise that's running on polygon actually uh trent uh, our mutual friends uh uh ocean just announced that they're working with polygon um for me it's like kind of exciting because for some reason i mean there's a there's a few of these uh in the ecosystem but like i was playing with it this week and i was like oh whoa this is a this is a quantum leap like all of a sudden you know the concerns it would cost ten thousand dollars to mint uh, and throw around like the amount of tokens i was talking about minting for five bucks um so that to me is like that to me is like a you know something i'm I'm excited about and i think is really cool so polygon um and the third one actually i've I've been playing around a lot this week with the open ai music tools um which is which i've known i've known about them forever but i haven't actually bothered to play with them and uh yeah that that's i mean that's a whole other podcast episode but people are not ready people are not ready i mean like it's it's really good. I was like writing uh, some music this, this morning and like feeding 10 second passages, getting 10 second passages back that were better than the 10 seconds I gave it, then refeeding it. Really? Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, I mean, I, I knew it was good, but like I was playing, I, I, <laughs> I was, pl- I was playing with it earlier, like actually focusing on it and being like, could, how would you use this as a writing tool or something? And I was like, Oh yeah, it's we're, we're closer. We're closer to where I thought, uh, we're closer to, to where I think things are going than I think most people are ready for it. Like, which is another, a whole other topic. It's, it's, it's a whole other area where like intense public interest in, you know, like AI music, like 
there's been these big sensationalist articles like AI is going to put all musicians out of work, blah, blah, blah. And then the, the real story is like hovering underneath it where you're like, actually, no, this is incredibly exciting. Like, um, and the tools are there. They're just not, yeah, they're just not, not, not very well packaged. And well, not it's, kind the, of- it's, the, it's the 808 drum machine again, right? Where the 808 was going to put every, all the drummers out of work. <laughs> um, no, the drummers are going to feed the 808 interesting things and use it as a tool. You know? So that, so that part, I, I'm, I'm, you know, that that's like my other life, but like that, I'm very excited, uh, uh, by that stuff if not not unconcerned though because the downside of it is like it's not even the the replacement of musicians part it's more that like for example you're able to generate music based upon archetypes of people who haven't approved usage of their archetype um yeah so for vibe the the copyright in a vibe make it sound like you know john fogarty well exactly and it's like and uh i mean we were on on so this clip is which is another tool they've been developing, which is also crazy, which is like a semantic image generation tool. So you can be like, it knows a bunch of stuff. And then you can be like, I want a, a tree that looks like a dog, you know? But for whatever reason, clip recognizes my wife, like knows who she is. So you can say like, I want a dog that looks like Holly Herndon and it will generate a dog that looks like Holly Herndon. But of course, like she has no say in this, right? Um, and there's no, there's no like royalty structure built around this. That there's no- yeah. Yeah, exactly. So one one door opens and it's like incredibly exciting. And then there's all this other stuff to cons- to consider where you're like, holy, like if you're a lawyer and you want to make a lot of money in the next 10 years, like, and you don't want to work with Web3 stuff, then get into like uh, machine learning IP because this is just, it's just a different paradigm. You know, it, it's, um, but, but incredibly exciting, I think on the creative side. Um, yeah. So those are my, those are my three things. Excellent. Those are amazing. Dan? Sure. Um, First is a Twitter account, and I know embarrassingly little about the guy behind it. I just like his tweets. Uh, Chris Enswell Jones, I believe, used to write for Esquire. Uh, For the past year, every Friday, he's done a very short thread of just a story from his life, and he just wrapped up a full year of it, and he's pausing for a moment. But they've been so fantastic and moving and funny, and because he used to interview people it's uh, his stories about hanging out with Carrot Top in Las Vegas and Carrot Top taking him to Shania Twain's house because she was doing a residency and them hanging out by the pool. And he only did that because (laughs) some other writer that he hated loved Carrot Top. So he wanted to make sure he got the story. And so how that small, like, act of pettiness put him at Shania Twain's house with Carrot Top and their friends. Um, Or how he interviewed... Blank on the name, but one guy that um, lost the ability to speak, so had to do the entire interview over post-it notes um, because Chris convinced him that no, we need to do this in person, and the guy said yes, and so and the guy recently passed away, I guess, but he's got all the post-it notes from this interview on his desk, and he kind of has this conversation with the guy over and over again by reading through them, and it sounds like this year of weekly stories has led to some big projects that he can't announce yet but it's just one of those twitter so often you get in like this bubble of business or crypto or music and you're in this niche and then when you see something that is just art you know truly art it's um it sticks out so uh we'll we'll share his twitter handle it's the one thing i don't like about twitter it's so hard to go back if i just want to view i know all of his friday tweets like 
you're just scrolling and he tweets so much it's like you're actually scrolling a lot to get to the previous friday um but anyway he's he's well worth the fall and i i have to imagine there's something exciting coming out from him in the future um the next is an article in the atlantic by ellen cushing called late stage pandemic is messing with your brain um i haven't read it i saw it yeah <laughs> She has had a different pandemic experience than I have. And it seems like for most people, you either you've ended up with way too much time or way less time than ever. And because we no longer have to travel, we're all just working in our free time. Um, but so it's it caused me to stop and just try to figure out, like, what has changed about me over the past year? What, you know, for better or for worse? And, and what am I going to have to deal with? Because we're all dealing with like regardless of what your mental state was before the pandemic, now everyone has at least some base level anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And then anything you had issues with is just heightened and we don't recognize how we're coping with it because it's been going on for such a long period of time. It's so I think the article is great, but also the, the kind of rabbit hole it made me start thinking about, um, is that's uh, a big one. I don't think we're going to know. Yeah, the fallout of this is, I feel personally just like so burned out. That's great. I, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I don't think the, the mental uh, uh, fallout of this will be properly known for a couple no, of years. No, it's maybe. true. It will, take, it will take some time. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's. I think it's worth, I mean, I, I wish I was in therapy, but hopefully around. I have a code if you want to get started. You I can give you a free week. Well, after, after I get married, I think we have access to health insurance that provides therapy. So that's kind of been what I've been holding out for. But so maybe people that are in therapy God. have... A reason um, to get married is just for the therapy benefits. And, you know, and, and dental, you know, among <laughs> other things. Um, <laughs> but, Dark. Uh, it's not not. I mean, um, but... Uh, the, the point, I, I, I imagine people that are in therapy have been going through this, but anyone that's not in therapy to just stop and think about what is this ongoing um, staying at home kind of thing doing to you is worth thinking about. And uh, the last one, number three, is my new toy, the Oculus Quest 2, and the just embarrassing amount of money I've spent. You know, you spend $300 and you think, oh, that's like not much money at all to get this incredible experience. You know, you think about when the iPhone came out and it was like, oh, no one's gonna spend $600 on a phone. And now it's just by default, everyone's got a 500 to $1,000 phone in their pockets. VR is getting cheap enough where that's gotta be, eventually that's gonna happen, but it's, I mean, you get excited about it. It's amazing how quickly you can spend ten and twenty dollars here and there, and you've got a you know two hundred dollar library full of apps that are all, you know, for the most part, pretty good. There's you know, I do enough research to not get the shit ones, um, but I've been impressed by the consistency of uh, kind of the quality of experiences there, um, even when they're a little weird. But worth getting. Um, I yield the floor. I'll go. I just finished a really great book called Three Women. It covers, there's three different women in it. <laughs> um, and it covers kind of like their sexual and emotional lives. But the author, Lisa Taddeo, I'm not sure if that's how you say it, T-A-D-D-E-O. It's, it's a piece of nonfiction. And she actually spent eight years like traveling around the U.S. and collecting stories and then kind of imbuing herself 
in the lives of these three women. One is from North Dakota, one's from Indiana, and one I think is from Rhode Island. They always say like East Coast, but she's it's Rhode Island, I think. Um, and it's just like a really interesting view. I don't know. It's one of those things that it just reminds me like everyone is dealing with so much more than we realize, but zoning in on like a, the sexual component of these women's lives as mothers or as wives or as teenagers, that's what they, that's the three distinctions there. It's a really, really beautiful book. I think it's her first novel as well. It's been winning a bunch of awards. It came out in 2019, but it's like, it's been kind of, it's been very well received from critics and I had some friends recommend it and I'm going to, to pass it on because it's really wonderful. And then the second is an it's a an organization a, a grassroots collective actually maybe you guys have heard of it the Red Canary Song and it's actually a collective made up of Asian and migrant sex workers and they came together after um, a police raid back in 2017 um, at a massage parlor and the police murdered um, a young woman and so it started off as kind of like a, a project to provide legal support to her family after her death and to help for the healthcare expenses and it's become this collective and so they I I actually learned of them after um, the attacks that happened recently and looking for organizations that I could donate to help the Asian community but also it's like you want to find the right organization. So I did actually quite a bit of research and Red Canary Song is a very well-known one, but they also have a really um, great kind of digital library of resources that have come from different Asian migrant communities or just sex work communities. And then they talk a lot about the overlap of them. And that is also really another really interesting area, you know, like the economic advantages that are given to certain groups um, very largely, and then to be villainized that you have fit into this pocket that you've been told is one of your two options. So they do a lot of really interesting work. And if you are looking for a place to donate some money, I would recommend Red Canary Song. Um, and then the last is a podcast that I just finished called The Opportunist Podcast. And um, this is the first season, so I imagine it'll be a different person every season because they describe it as it tells true stories of regular people who turn sinister simply by being opportunistic. I find that fascinating. You see examples of that all the time. Sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and so this first woman is Sherry Schreiner, and it's this Midwest mom, lifelong uh, religious woman who actually wanted, she had her sights set on becoming a journalist. And those, she went to journalism school and everything, but her like big dreams of becoming a news anchor didn't work out. She ended up getting married and having kids and, you know, living that life. But she found a way, as one does, to create her own little community of sorts. She became essentially like an internet cult leader. And it's like, every, it includes everything from like, of course, the doomsday predictions to the alien reptilian conspiracy theories. She was selling Argon as like kind of a huge subsect of that. And like, was like she sent people to New Orleans before Katrina to like put argon all around the dome. Like it's insane, but it's this really interesting story because that's something that fascinates me is such kind of like internet cult or any kind of cult and how people come to believe them. And so it gives this look into, there's no other word for Sherry Schreiner than lunatic, but, and the people <laughs> who followed her, but like it actually begins with, of course, um, a murder because often people are 
so entrenched that there's a loss of life involved as well. And so, but like she had been kind of behind it. So the reporting is really interesting, but it also ends kind of looking at, um, she passed away, Sherry Schreiner, but she passed away right as, um, I think Trump had just been elected or he was campaigning, but the kind of web of what that did also to QAnon and other kind of internet cults and she had always been very anti-government and then it was like Trump was too big to actually exclude from that like his crazy is such a specific brand of crazy but anyways I think the the theme itself is really fascinating this opportunistic approach and so I'm hoping that season two comes out soon but the story of Sherry Schreiner is is a pretty wild one. And if I haven't given myself away too much with that, it's like cults, sex work. Those are <laughs> the sexual lives of women and internet cults. Those are two of my uh, my passions, Matt. Now you have a deeper insight into what gets me excited. It does sound exciting. What I? I've heard of more boring interests. <laughs> yeah, I, I like. I visited all the national parks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so my three things. Um, so I am always so fucking happy when I like get deep into music that's relatively current because that's not doesn't happen for me often usually i'm nerding out about alice coltrane or threnody for the victims of hiroshima or whatever but for some reason this past two weeks now i have been literally obsessed listening to the exclusion of all other music to two albums and i so they're each one of two you know two of my three things um and and they're really they could not be more different but I ping pong back and forth between them and they both blow my mind in different ways. Um, the first one I just slept on because it's been out for a while now, but St. Cloud by Waxahachie, I just think is just so fucking great. It's sad as fuck. It's, but she, you know, and she's been doing it for a long time and she's progressed and transformed as an artist. And it's the album is about addiction and codependency and all this stuff, but she just, and she just, her melodies and I sit down, I play the guitar to him, and it's just the most basic GDC chords, but her melodies are out of control. <laughs> and then they did this great kind of arrangements, and they've got, it sounds like, it's all like Wurlitzers and, and, and Fender Rhodes. You know, they're trying to do the, the uh, what's his name? Um, who's the great Wurlitzer? Uh, 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 Spooner Oldham, you know, kind of playing. It's great, 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 great record. But it'll make you sad as fuck. So then I get sad, and then I, I want something else. And this record's equally sad, but production-wise, it couldn't be more different. And it's this artist, but she goes by the name of The Weather Station from Toronto, Canada, Carly. And her name is um, Tamara Lindemann. And again, I went back and listened to her earlier stuff, and it's super folky. She made this record that she made this time. It's like Roxy Music's Avalon or something. The production is exquisite. It, it is like I haven't heard in... in it, it, it's, it straddles this line where like when, when like Steely Dan or something gets bad, it's so fucking bad, but like they never, they edge up to that, but they never get there. And I also love the fact that it's two female band leaders. The, as best I can tell, the weather station, all of the players are, 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 are dudes, but she is so fucking in control and you can tell like she directed that. And with, with Waxahachie, Katie Crutchfield, 
she directed it. Like I, I love seeing, you know, because it could, they could have so easily, they don't sound like dude records at all. And I love them both. And, and that you can flip flop them. Like you'll eventually get tired of one of them. And then the, the other, I was funny. I was, I was, um, I went to take my son to his, his orientation and they did like a little class on uh, a little class example. And the teacher was talking about, it was a history class. They were talking about just the, the genocide of native Americans and, and how, you know, we, we, we stole everything from them. And, and the first song on this, the St. Cla- on the, on the weather station record, which is called ignorance is called robbers. And it's about how um, the Canadians Indians were robbed and you don't hear about that very often, but the whole record's about climate change and stuff, but you'd never know. Like you can just listen. It's just this beautiful thing. It's a great record. My third thing is, is sort of a hybrid. It's, it's this quote. Um, and, and it's, the quote is to untrained ears, Thelonious Monk's music sounded chaotic and crude by comparison. He played music the way he felt, way life felt complex, unresolved, tragicomic, ungraspable, beautiful. It was music designed to remind the listener of how everything wasn't okay, especially not for African-Americans. And I just fucking love that quote. Monk's probably my favorite artist of all time. And so much of what I love about his work is that it, it is fractured. It is disjointed. And I never, being the stupid white male that I am, I never really saw that, the political nature of it. And now I can't unhear it. And it was, it was cool. It's a quote on this from this website that I, it's old, but that I discovered recently called Quest, Quest, Q-W-E-S-T oh, yeah. dot TV. And it's, it, it's, it's Quincy Jones's thing, but they've got, it's just this a treasure trove of Gil Scott Heron and all this stuff. How I avoided this. It's been around since 2017. It was like, uh, this was made for you, George. And like, yeah, unaware. So <laughs> with some questionable legal practices behind it though, I might add, there's been some, the content you mean? Yeah. Of whether they have, it reminds me of Wolfgang. Yeah, well, they have the like I, I bet that some of yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, but yeah. Anyway, well, Matt, I, I can't thank you enough. You you started this by saying you were burned out, and I was expecting like low energy, few ideas, and you 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 were just everything. I was just hanging on every word. I, it was I love great. the way your mind works. I love, yeah, I love your spirit, and I love your generosity of knowledge. I just the the, the way that you 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 do and then you talk about it just inspires me so much because there's usually two classes of people people that do and never talk about it and people that talk and never do and you're always building stuff and it's always interesting and always cool and just so grateful to be your friend and that you would take this time to do this was awesome i'm really really happy to and yeah no this is this has been a relief from the burnout but but yeah no I, i really i really appreciate the opportunity to to hang out with you all uh yeah but uh i'm i'm around um and uh yeah hopefully hopefully can uh join you join you again at some point it might take me a little while more to find three more things i'm excited <laughs> about but the uh <laughs> all right. thank you so take much take good care Great i will do i will do have, you, a, have a sweet day everyone right. you Bye, too. Take care. the entrepreneurship and art podcast is a gh strategic production hosted by me carly sheridan dan cervantes and George Howard. For more information and show notes, visit our website at entrepreneurshipandart.com.